Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about good monsters for World Storytelling Day 2014. This year for World Storytelling Day, the theme is monsters and dragons, and I've decided to go with telling other people's stories, or at least reviewing those stories, from the perspective of just the monsters side of the equation. This will be the third time that I've done a show that focused at least somewhat on the concept of World Storytelling Day, the third inappropriate conversation, the first one that really truly solidified the format, looked at light and shadow. Inappropriate Conversations 83 was actually called Being a Tree on World Storytelling Day. I suspect I'm just going to call this one Good Monsters and let that element, the storytelling element of it, shake out when you begin to listen. You can listen to Inappropriate Conversations on Stitcher. Stitcher Smart Radio is a great way to listen to Inappropriate Conversations and many other podcasts on the go. The one thing Stitcher won't necessarily do for you is get you a callback to either episode 3 or even episode 83. Stitcher holds a backlog of shows, but it's comparable to what you'll find on iTunes. To find a complete history of inappropriate conversations, well, that's the website at inappropriateconversations.org. World Storytelling Day has appealed to me for many reasons. First, I just like the idea of the sort of the nature of somebody handing you a topic and seeing what you can do with it. When I spoke about light and shadow for the you know, third episode of Inappropriate Conversations, I used the topic coming from World Storytelling Day as a way of talking through what the themes of this show would be and how I might deal with questions of light and shadow, both from a political and a religious perspective at the same time. With Being a Tree, that particular episode, I really did take it to heart and did personal storytelling wrapping it both around the uh, theme itself of trees and also around scripture. And in fact, the different drummer for that show could have provided the accompaniment for it had I chosen to play a sound clip. I will share a few clips in today's shows, but today's show is going to be more about movies. I think truly, as a podcaster, what interested me initially in podcasting or what really tweaked that interest the most was movie reviews. I've been interested in film for most of my life, I worked in movie theaters in part because it gave me the ability to see as many movies as possible, cheaply and in many cases free. As I got older into college, I leveraged that experience to reinvigorate the entertainment section of the college newspaper and write movie reviews. In many ways, I've been writing movie reviews my entire life. I'd still do it, even with no interest necessarily in being published. When I first sat down, though, to think about, hey, if I was going to do a podcast of some sort... But what I really enjoy more than anything else, and perhaps movie reviews was the top of that list, or at least very near the top of that list, it's just really and truly a crowded field. And I felt like I had something more unique to say if I went in a different direction. But today, sharing perhaps a couple of clips, maybe a, a theme song, a movie trailer, I'm going to take another look at movies like I did a couple of years ago on Halloween. This time, though, I want to look at monsters from a little bit of a different perspective. And instead of talking about monsters from you know, the thriller angle or the horror angle, 
I want to take a look from the perspective of there being such a thing, such an idea as good monsters, that in many ways, the monster movie as a concept is a morality tale. Or at least if you think traditionally of the monster as a villain, that's often not going to be the case when the movie itself plays out. And I'm going to use two movies to hit this from a couple of different directions, different examples. First, though, unrelated necessarily to the concept of monsters per se, I want to make a reference to The Sweet Hereafter. And what that film did in terms of bringing in the story of the Pied Piper and making a tragic tale of a bunch of school kids perishing in an icy bus crash be a parallel for the notion of kids being taken away from their parents and essentially kind of a adult-focused, adult-oriented telling of that fable, which has always ended sort of sadly. And in this case, it, it ends tragically as it begins, really from the very start. Meaning that you can take a fairy tale and put it on screen in a way that the target audience for that element of it is adults. The best example I can think of this from the realm of children's movies, from Disney in particular, is Lilo and Stitch. In many ways, the centerpiece of the movie Lilo and Stitch is the story of the ugly duckling and the monster's relationship to the story. So first, what do I mean by monster? Well, Lilo and Stitch, the 2002 animated Disney cartoon, animated in a traditional way, not a Pixar movie in this case, was the story of a uh, genetic creation. A mad scientist from some far-off galaxy has created a creature that he calls Experiment 626, the implication being that there were 625 previously failed prototypes of this monster, for want of a better word, designed to destroy planets and wreak mayhem. And as the show begins, the Stitch character is dragged in front of a galactic high council where it's being charged with being a crime against, I'm going to use humanity in air quotes here, but a crime against creation and being sentenced ultimately to exile. This is one of the uh, moments that I've referred to, I think, in the past on Inappropriate Conversations. One of my favorite moments in all cartoons, where the uh, queen of the council, the leader of this group, asks the creature if it has anything to say in defense of itself. And it straightens itself up, clears its throat, and utters three words in an alien tongue, Miga Nilo Quista, in such a way that apparently was so offensive that it caused people to faint, to lose consciousness. Robots were throwing up nuts and bolts. To be able to say something so offensive that you could have that kind of impact on people. <laughs> Experiment 626. You've given no indication that you are anything but dangerous. But I can give you this one chance. Show us that there is something inside you that is good. Answer, you piece of garbage! In some ways, that's a teenage boy's dream, to be able to utter words that would actually make people fall down with just the inability to process what you're saying because it's that inappropriate. And that's sort of a way of communicating to a kid audience that this creature has very few redeeming values. 
in the process of it being exiled away from its galaxy into some faraway place, the creature hijacks the ship, loses control, and ends up crash-landing on Earth in Hawaii, and a very remote part, a very remote island on Hawaii, where he gets ultimately adopted, as if he were a lost dog or something, by a little girl, elementary school age at best, maybe even kindergarten, first grade, somewhere in that ballpark, who is living with her older, uh, maybe just out of high school sister or high school age sister, because their parents have died in a car accident, and they're all that's left, and they're trying to make it work as a family on their own here in, here in the island. I'm not going to review the movie in terms of its aesthetic qualities. I will say just briefly that it's refreshing to see this kind of animation in a world where the computer animation, both in the Pixar sense and in the CGI sense on live-action sort of action films, have taken over. It isn't exactly as old school as maybe Lady and the Tramp, but it is closer to that than it is to anything that you see today from maybe DreamWorks or the rest of the Disney studio output. So it's got a good look to it, a good somewhat old-school look to it. The plot has problems in that in some ways it doesn't make sense for these two sisters to be living alone with very little support or supervision. They're just scraping by. They're not getting along very well, as the Lilo character refers to it in the movie, trying to explain to her, quote-unquote, dog, which she's named Stitch, that um, their family is little and broken. In fact, one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the movie, and it is a movie that is capable of you know, dredging up those types of emotions, the Stitch creature wrestling all along with whether it's going to be the monster, Experiment 626, or whether it's going to be part of this family, whether it's the family dog or in some other role, decides at one point that it just doesn't belong. It doesn't fit in. And having read the story of the ugly duckling, decides he's going to leave. What makes it heartbreaking is that the perceptive young girl understands this and basically tells Stitch, you can be a part of this family if you want to. We'll raise you to be good. We'll take care of you. But if you want to go, that's okay too. She restates to him that Ohana means family. But she tells him right as he's crawling out the window to at least presumably leave forever, I'll remember you, though. I remember everyone that leaves. Referring both to Stitch, but also to her dead parents. I think in some ways, I've got members of my family who are less enthralled with Lilo and Stitch as a movie than I am. And I think the problem that maybe some folks have with it is that this is a little bit heavy. This is some dark material. And it raises the question of where's the monster in the movie Lilo and Stitch. Theoretically, you've got a monster movie here. You've got a creature, Experiment 626, built and bred genetically to destroy, con- to destroy continents, to destroy planets, for, for that matter, who's here being transformed through its relationship with this very broken family. And as the movie wraps up, you quickly realize that the, the dictatorial elements of the Galactic Council the military wing of that council, probably is better, descri- better described as a monster than this particular creature. Or, if you look at it the way that I choose to look at it, this Stitch character is a good monster. This Stitch character, in many ways, quite literally stitches this family together. You know, I don't want to you know say that the movie makes the cliché too clear or too trite, 
about helping them blossom into a beautiful swan or, or you know, saving the day that overtly. You get the impression this is a family that still has got a lot of challenges ahead of them, a lot of growing pains to deal with. But at the very end of the film, Galactic Council decides that this family is better off with this creature. And in some ways, the best answer for how do you control the danger of this particular creature made for warfare, the threat of the experiment that was 626, that in some ways being inside this family neutralizes the monster as well. When I watch Lilo and Stitch, in many, many ways, I identify with the Stitch character. It is in you know one of the, probably the most male character among the leads. For one thing, the principal figures in the show are the two sisters, and the principal figure in the Galactic High Council is a woman as well. I certainly don't agree or identify much with Captain Gantu, who ultimately plays the role of villain in this. And I don't have the disinterest, you know, the outsider's perspective of the social worker who looks like and is voiced by Ving Rhames. No, for me, more than anything else, it's the Stitch creature. And in some ways, it crosses that line really nicely between what it means to be a monster and what it means to be a hero. On some level, it feels wrong to spoil the ending of it. Maybe it's one of the monstrous things I'm going to do today. But I will tell you that I've seen this movie at least a dozen times, and every time I see it, it never fails to generate some sort of an emotional response. I don't think that knowing how it ends is necessarily going to ruin the impact of the film. When, at the end of the movie, the Stitch creature actually does the talking and talks the Galactic High Council into leaving him with this family, which he says is little and broken, but still good. Yes, still good. Even for all the flaws that you might be able to cite in some of the elements of Lilo and Stitch as a movie, the suspension of disbelief you've got to kind of maintain to allow yourself to think that these two sisters could still be alone in that sort of an unsupervised situation after their parents died, or that it's in any way acceptable to accept that even a child this young in Hawaii would be swimming or surfing alone somewhat in the depths of the ocean. Now, to me, the movie, when you compare it to the juggernaut that is Pixar, even from a Disney perspective, this movie is little. And even if you argue that it's little and broken, it's undeniably still good. For over 70 years, the Walt Disney Studios has won the hearts of audiences with the most enchanting, delightful, and lovable characters the world has ever known. The tradition... Simba? <laughs> His name is Stitch. He's loose. He's taking a police cruiser. Yeah, he took the red one. The crazy truck is about to make a jump. Where is he? A place called Hawaii. will collide and paradise will never be the same all of our dogs are adoptable except that one <laughs> he got the will and you must now bring him back okay. Okay. he's indescribable you sure it's a dog i think it might be a koala 
an evil koala. <laughs> Indestructible. Things are going well. Indigestible. Fascinating, isn't it? And completely irresistible. We have to take him back. What about Ohana? Ohana means family. Family means nobody gets left behind. Walt Disney Pictures presents. Lilo and Stitch. Look. There's through the mist, it silently stands. Welcoming Sarah, already planned. This forgotten soul that the storm has sent to the lost continent. Well, if that's not a juxtaposition, a throwing back in time, it would probably should be. Because I'm making a journey now from a 2002 animated film to a 1968 Hammer film called The Lost Continent. And I'm doing so in part because this is a guilty pleasure for me. And if we're going to talk about things that are monstrous to one degree or another, really the best place to go is to the old-fashioned creature feature. And here in... 1968 Hammer Productions, you're looking at an interesting cross-section between what it means to be old-fashioned. In the United States, in Hollywood in 1968, you were beginning to see uh, the onset of the R-rated films of the 1970s. By now, at this stage, filming would be already planned, if not beginning, for the first X-rated movies to be released as art, and, and the movies that would get nominated for, in one case, even win Best Picture. Movies like Midnight Cowboy would be storyboarded at about this time. But over in England, the the Lost Continent, is Hammer still wrestling with its identity as it's moving away in some ways from just the pure Frankenstein and Dracula sort of over to uh, maybe otherwise, you know, just pure horror film to this bizarre movie based on the book Uncharted Seas by Dennis Wheatley. You've got to be careful with The Lost Continent and that there's two or three different movies out there with very similar titles. This is the one from 1968, and it is a strange combination of genre, a combination that almost doesn't make sense. It starts off with kind of an adventure with a, a captain sort of fleeing the Coast Guard with some contraband cargo, and then it turns into sort of a mutiny at sea kind of a story. And then it turns into a poor man's version of the perfect storm as the ship runs into some very serious tropical weather and, and the uh, most of the passengers and some of the crew escape by lifeboat. And then you end up with a segment that's a bit like Hitchcock's lifeboat where there's you know, only maybe 10 minutes or so, but it's still 10 minutes of that claustrophobic setting of uh, people surviving in the open sea on a lifeboat. After that plays out, the uh, the group encounters the monsters for the first time. They drift into some uncharted part of the Sargasso Sea where the kelp is alive. Uh, in my family, we call it the killer kelp. 
it's a seaweed that grabs people, can pull you in, and uh, if not strangle you and drown you, maybe even cut you to ribbons. And they begin to encounter this, and the kelp takes the lifeboat, takes kind of takes control and navigates the lifeboat into the heart of this dead zone in the ocean where they run in to the ship they left from, which tossed and turned in the storm is also landed in this place with the kelp clogging up the uh, the navigational works of the ship and moving the ship further and further inside. It's not long before you then realize that it's not just the kelp that's a problem. There are other monsters, uh, giant mollusks, giant um, scorpions, giant crabs, you know, dueling to the death, things of that nature. But the thing I like from a good monster's perspective about the Lost Continent is that it raises the question of who the real monster in a monster movie is. Now, people familiar with the work of Richard Matheson, perhaps the original um, versions of I Am Legend, would understand kind of where I'm heading here, because that's the heart and soul of some of the more intelligent science fiction written in the last 50 or 60 years. Don't get me wrong. The Lost Continent I would not describe as intelligent fiction. That's not the direction that I would go in. And it's at every bit a a creature feature, a monster movie, a matinee, a B-movie kind of title. But it still nevertheless gets that question in of who the real monsters are. Now, unlike a good monster like Stitch in the first movie that I talked about, in this case, it's more that these are natural phenomena or even unnatural phenomenon, but they don't seem to have intent. The real monsters are the people who are the henchmen representing a splinter group of the Spanish Inquisition that has somehow taken charge of this lost, you know, it's not really a continent. There's not much land. There's just a few islands. But this this lost seaweed-bound uh, graveyard of ships. So you start with a ship of fools story, but now they're beginning to encounter other people. Then they have a you know, a gunfight and sword fight with some of the quote-unquote natives who are invading their ship with the intent of taking them prisoner or killing them and taking all of their supplies. Well, the thing that I left out about this story, two things. One I'll get to in the different drummer segment. But the two things I left out is that the contraband that the captain is traveling with that has brought this ship of fools together, the only people willing to pay that price on a ship that old for a transit that dodgy to try to make a journey from Africa over to South America, those people are running away from their own problems. So you've got everybody with a good reason to want to brave everything and ride with explosives that get uh, ignited by contact with water through a hurricane. But the possession of those illegal explosives that, again, blow up when they contact water gives you the hope that these people are going to be able to get through this situation because they might just be able to blast their way through the oceanic tide of of seaweed and ultimately they have to use that in a battle against this splinter group of the spanish inquisition if this sounds fantastically weird bizarre and well frankly almost stupid then i'm doing an almost good job of describing it because those words pretty much sum it up the Interesting thing to me, a couple of interesting things is, film made in 1968, it calls to mind some elements that you would see later in Return of the Jedi. I won't call it out in any great detail, but there's a creature that's uh, filled with many teeth, 
capable of devouring men whole. In this case, living sort of part in the ocean and part on an abandoned, erect ship. But it looks a lot like the creature that you see in the beginning part of Return of the Jedi. Uh, and instead of having, of course, a Boba Fett-type character to drop into it, it's the victims of this Inquisition that get dropped into it. Now, the effects don't look great. Everything about the original Star Wars trilogy from a special effects perspective looks better than anything in the lost continent but it's interesting that the ideas are there if you were george lucas and you hadn't seen the lost continent ever and then you created the design for this particular monster in return of the jedi it would be a fairly incredible coincidence that'd be my perspective anyway I recently had to switch DVRs, and as a result of doing that, lost everything that I'd recorded for several years. The one thing that I recorded that I'm going to miss the most, though, was a commercial-free telecast on Turner Classic Movies of The Lost Continent. In all the years that I've ever had a DVR, I can only name maybe three times I've ever used the lock function. It's not that I haven't recorded things that I intended to keep and maybe keep for a very long time. But there's only a couple times which I've actually used the functionality to lock a, a recording and make sure that no one accidentally released it. One of them was the 30 for 30 ESPN documentary, Survive in Advance, about the North Carolina State Wolfpack basketball team and their improbable 1983 run to the national championship. The other was the lost continent. My son looked me in the eyes the other day and asked, Pa, when's this war going to be over? I answered him, that one day his children and his children's children will look back and know that four warriors stood and fought and answered geeky trivia so that children everywhere could be free. The names of those heroes fresh on their minds, their tongues and their tattoos. Omar from Costa Rica, Roe from Washington, and of course their fearless leader, Commander Jason. I'm Kevin from Canada, and this is Atomic Trivia War 9000. ATW9K. a million years are but a moment. Here, where the present and the past tremble in the presence of the prehistoric, from here comes an adventure so big that only the big screen can do it justice. What is it? The Lost Continent. Discovered in all its monstrous horror. Never come across anything like that before. A living hell that time forgot. <laughs> this is the man who brought them to the lost continent to face the terrors of the past. women on the lost continent. Her past drove her here. Didn't they expect me to leave with nothing? Her future begins here. His life could end here. Now, the horrors from the past meet headlong with the terrors of the future. Unless because it's dry. But let one drop of water touch it. You will see torture pits for forbidden lovers. 
barbaric sacrifice. Monster weed attack helpless beauties. Seed. Giant mollusks. See them fight to the death. Seaman struggled to destroy the evil of the lost continent. From the novel Uncharted Seas by Dennis Wheatley. Look out on the starboard side! A living hell that time forgot on the lost continent. So my perspective that the is that the real monsters in the movie The Lost Continent were the humans. In fact, the adult humans that were propagating this sort of quasi-religious dominionist control over the people who had survived shipwrecks and been abandoned in this place, along with any of the indigenous people living on the islands nearby. That's one really good use of the expression monsters, and it, it is a valid and interesting comparison to the quote-unquote sea creatures and you know, unusual phenomenon that are around in this you know, weird part of the sea. But there's another, more of a teenage boy use of the term monsters that perhaps applies as well, and it applies to our different drummer. I think more than any other reason, the reason I remember the Lost Continent so well, was that I saw it for the first time when I was probably around 9 or 10 years old. And even though I didn't realize it at the time, the biggest impression that the movie left on me wasn't the killer kelp. It wasn't the creatures. It wasn't even the Spanish Inquisition. It was Dana Gillespie. The Wikipedia entry for Dana Gillespie starts with what her birth name was. Rashenda Antoinette de Winterstein Gillespie, born March 1949. Wikipedia describes her as an English actress, singer, and songwriter. Originally performing and recording in her teens, over the years Gillespie has been involved in recording over 45 albums, appeared in stage productions, including the original Mary Magdalene on the uh, English version of Jesus Christ Superstar. So not the original from a Broadway perspective, but the, in- the original from a London perspective, and several films. Among other things, she was the British junior water skiing champion for four straight years uh, through 1962. So here's an interesting combination of sports and music and acting. And on top of all that, she's a follower of, a, of an Indian spiritual guru and has recorded multiple albums in Sanskrit. We're dealing with, again, a classic different drummer trait, somebody who brings a lot of unique talents a lot of uh, varied interests to the table. But when I first saw her, she only would have been maybe 19 or 20 years old, appearing as the character Sarah in just her second film, The Lost Continent. Now I say she left an impression. It was really partly her and partly the costume designers. I've often wondered whenever I've watched this movie, and I've seen it many times, I own Laserdisc. I believe I've got a VHS recording of that Laserdisc. It's not readily available in the United States on DVD, however. But in all the times I've watched it, you wonder, 
uh, how does the logic of the outfits that these people wear work? You're in a forbidding, saltwater-bound environment with you know giant crabs <laughs> roaming around on the islands and killer seaweed uh, rising to the to the surface of the ocean. I think you'd cover yourself up a little bit better. But she was wearing a very revealing top. And, you know, one of the, I think the characteristic you'd have to describe for this was that the number one goal, I think, for this particular character was, in contrast, perhaps, to the other women in the cast, somebody brought a lot of cleavage to the party. And, again, I, at nine or ten years old, seeing this for the very first time, I probably would have initially been interested in the, in the seaweed or in the monsters or perhaps just in the action you know, the movie starts off with a funeral, <clears throat> flashes back to evading the Coast Guard. There's explosions, there's a mutiny, all this other action. The thing I think I remember most, though, is Gillespie. Now, I'm not going to give her credit for being the best acting performance in a film like this one, because it just doesn't make sense to call out a superior acting performance in what is in every, in every conceivable way a B-movie. But what I will say is that she left an impression. I have since tracked down other films of hers. I've seen Mahler, made in 1974. The People the Time Forgot it is on my list to see the version of The Hound of the Baskervilles that she appeared in with Dudley Moore. Bad Timing has been in my Netflix queue for as long as I've had a Netflix queue. Just haven't had the courage to actually bubble it up to the top and have a disc sent to my home. I didn't watch it during whatever periods of time it might have been on streaming either. The problem with the movie is that it's dark and depressing, and I'm used to associating the performances of Gillespie with things which are much more positive and uplifting. This certainly includes her music. I have more than a dozen tracks on my Zoom today of the music of Dana Gillespie, and I intend over the years to have more. One of them is the hit single for her in the early 70s called Move Your Body Close to Me. The version I've got is actually a remix track with a group called the Sofa Surfers. This particular version, you know, like perhaps the original, brings in those elements of the Indian subcontinent musically, but this is more of a hip-hop rendering of it. I've got a dozen other tracks for the sake of argument. As recently as 2011, her album Staying Power, like the title of the CD, the entire album has stayed on my Zune. So I put it on the player, listen several times. At some point, I figure I'm going to go back and weed out the songs that I don't enjoy as much. That hasn't happened yet. And it appears that, again, maybe this album actually has staying power in its entirety. If I were to pick a favorite by her from her blues recordings, it will probably be the song Empty Bed Blues from Hot Stuff. And a pretty good example of what she can do inside a vein that I might compare, at least in musical style, to Coco Taylor. Gillespie's blues in some ways has a lot in common with the range you see from Coco Taylor. Everything from sort of that honky-tonk, Chicago, let's have a good time sound, to the true mournful sort of blues numbers. Gillespie's website makes a mention of something called Mystique Blues Festival. Every year, in the last week of January, at least for the past decade or so, the Caribbean island of Mystique has been the host site for a charity blues festival that is founded and organized by Gillespie. Multiple groups perform on the island at a local bar, and they've had guests over the years ranging from Big J. McNeely to Mick Jagger. It's a, an event I don't think I can ever fi figure out how I would get to, 
It's not necessarily a high-priority trip for me. But it's interesting that she has made such a commitment on giving back through the blues. For an actress who may have originally made an impression on me only because of her good monsters, you might say, has really created quite an established career, appearing both in as the cave woman in prehistoric adventures like The People That Time Forgot, but also having an acting credit in a Ken Russell film, appearing on stage in the Weber musical Jesus Christ Superstar as Mary Magdalene, having performed directly or indirectly with uh, Jimmy Page and David Bowie on the music side, in addition to her sports credits, having been a British champion water skier. At the very end of March this year, Gillespie will be turning 65. I can remember back when 65 years old was the retirement age, at least in the United States it was viewed as a retirement age. She shows no indication of being ready or even willing to retire. From her website at dana-gillespie.com, there's a biography section that begins with this quote from her. I believe the blues should be sung by an older person because it's about emotions and experience. I couldn't do justice to it when I was younger because my voice didn't have the edge it needed to convey the emotion, nor did I have the first-hand experience to sing about the blue themes convincingly. Earlier in her career, she was more of a folk music stylist in terms of the way she performed. She went through a pop and rock stage, and in addition to performing in the blues, she's also recorded 13 Bajan-based titles you know, in India and re- recorded in Sanskrit. To me, that's somewhat mind-blowing. This is an individual that is probably viewed, really from a film perspective, as a supporting actress. And a supporting actress in really not much more than a couple of handfuls of movies. But compare that to the output that she's put out musically, and you begin to get the impression that those of us who might have overestimated her, based on her looks alone in the late 60s and early 70s, or underestimated her in the late 70s and early 80s as an actress, probably didn't have any idea what was coming our way from the perspective of musical output. There are blues musicians, male and female, who have left a bigger impression on me than Dana Gillespie, but I can't think of any of them that have left the kind of impression on me that she has when you cut across genre and when you cut across these multiple art forms. Hi there, this is Stu the Beard Perry entreating you to please listen to our show for those about to rock on simplysyndicated.com. Please listen to our show, please! I'll acknowledge being just a little bit uncomfortable about the fact that I've chosen a strange juxtaposition to talk about monsters on World Storytelling Day. On the one hand, I've got a children's cartoon. A children's cartoon, mind you, with, with some very mournful and dark themes. And then I've got a bizarre Hammer monster movie from the late, late 1960s, where the key attraction for me there was essentially a sexual attraction to the performance of one particular actress. I don't think I can reconcile that. And I think that's okay. Because one of the things that makes this kind of B-movie interesting, this kind of monster movie interesting is that there often are things which simply cannot be reconciled which simply cannot be explained away i will no doubt return to both of these films many more times in my lifetime 
I don't think I am done with either Lilo and Stitch or The Lost Continent. And for that matter, if I ever, at one point in my life, return to the children's book, The Ugly Duckling, Lilo and Stitch is going to be foremost in my mind when that happens. And if I ever find my way into a blues festival or a concert of some sort where Dana Gillespie is performing her uniquely British, London-based blues style, somewhere in the back of my mind, that won't just be the experienced blues musician on the stage. Some part of her will always be the damsel in distress, both saving the day by warning the crew of the danger ahead, and ultimately getting rescued from the Lost Continent in the Hammer film, The Lost Continent. Next year, the theme for World Storytelling Day is Wishes. I'll probably skip it. So far in the five years, now that I've rolled over a fourth full year, and we're now in the fifth year of Inappropriate Conversations, I've done sort of an every-other approach. So I don't know that when I get to March of next year... I'll worry at all about talking to World Storytelling Day, but as I said two years ago, it won't surprise me if in a couple of years down the road, I don't go there again. It's an interesting exercise, and really, so far, only one out of three times have I actually done much personal storytelling on this occasion. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this inappropriate conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. On Facebook, there is a page for Inappropriate Conversations listed as a cause. There's also a page for the other podcast on this feed, Walk the Earth. I can be reached on Twitter at IC underscore Greg. And the website, www.inappropriateconversations.org, has show notes with comments enabled. Thanks for listening.